Hello, and welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast. I am your host, Joey, and today, Paulie and I are joined by a lovely fella named Ricky Gilby. Ricky is a member of our gym, and I first met him once he'd been training with us for a few weeks. Turns out the guy's a bit of a savage, knows his way around a barbell, and is pretty handy on the mats. But what was even cooler was I found out about this awesome business that he set up from scratch called Wow Hand Planes. Now, pretty simply, what they do is they produce these hand planes for body surfing, and we'll explain how that works in the episode. But the coolest layer of it is that they take plastics from the ocean, they pull them out, and then they repurpose that plastic into these awesome crafted hand planes. So he's achieving two really great things at the same time, and even better, he's building a community around body surfing, and he's really passionate about the whole thing. You can hear it in his voice, the way he tells the story. It's, it's, it's just a great sort of meeting of helping the environment, but also building a business and then bringing people together around something they love, which obviously speaks to us as the owners of the Jungle Brothers and the Jungle Alliance. So fantastic story, heaps of hurdles, as you would expect with any small business, from starting out in his garage, crafting these things out of timber, to now being able to have this supply chain where he repurposes this plastic. It's an amazing story, a really cool business, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, before we get into the episode, I do want to ask you for a couple of favors. Well, really the one favor is I just want you to help us promote the show a little bit. And so there's two ways that you can do that. The first thing you can do is just leave us a review on whichever podcast app you're using. So you can leave a five-star review if you think it's worth five stars. And then you can probably write something like, it's the greatest fucking show I've ever heard. And that goes a long way to informing others to check our show out. The second thing that you could do to support us is to simply share an episode with a friend of yours uh, and share it with someone who you think would benefit from the stuff that we talk about. Just flick it across and say, hey, if you check these guys out, you might like this show. Really simple gestures, won't take you very long, but they go a long way for us. And it helps us to continue to get these awesome guests like Ricky in uh, on the regular, produce these episodes each week and just keep good content and good conversation coming out for you guys. So I would love it if you could do that. Leave us a review, share the episode with a friend and please enjoy today's episode with Ricky Gilby. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know about our upcoming Coaches Intensive. This two-day workshop is for anyone who wants to become world-class as a fitness professional. In the course, you'll learn the key skill sets needed to excel in fitness, as well as how to build a successful fitness business. Over the two days, we explore topics such as leadership, programming, sales, marketing, public speaking, and more. There are no prerequisites to enroll in the workshop. So whether you're a gym owner, a coach, or simply somebody who's considering a transition into fitness at some point, this course is for you. The next Coaches Intensive is on June 18 and 19, right here at Jungle Brothers Strength and Movement in Botany, Sydney. To enroll, go to junglealliance.com courses and select the June event. As a listener of the show, you also get a sweet discount when you use the code JB podcast at checkout. I've also popped a link to the event right here in the show notes. I look forward to working with you in our next Coaches Intensive. Now, back to the episode. Guys, so let the experience begin. Ricky Gilby, thanks for joining us, brother. Mate, um, bunch of stuff I want to go into today, but I thought um, coolest thing would be if you could tell us 
what was the kernel for you to start your business? Like where was the point where you're like, I need to go and do this thing, build these hand yeah, planes? There was a specific moment for me. Um, Keep that a little bit closer for you and just you can turn it into your... Yeah. So, yeah, I moved to Australia about 12 years ago. Um, I moved over. Uh, I followed a, a girl over who is now my wife. Um, I found myself kind of very much absorbed into her life. I moved in with her, with her brother, worked for her dad as a chippy um, and was, yeah, I didn't really have much of a, a life of my own, I guess, after about 12 months I come to realise that. So I got a job in a surf store just to kind of branch myself out. I was pretty comfortable working in the construction industry. I was on some pretty good money, but I was just like, you know, I didn't have a network of people. So I pushed, pushed my boundaries and I, I got a job in a, in a surf store just in the evenings um, at Patagonia. Oh, yeah. Um, which I loved. I met a bunch of great people. Patagonia considered a surf brand these days. Uh, more so in the US. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're yep. a big, huge, huge surf sector in the US. Not so much in Australia, but very much up and coming. It's interesting just on that how they've changed. I remember my parents used to rock them mm. and it was like, older kind of upper middle class kind of you know good mountaineering gear and it's obviously always been mountaineering gear but now it's like the kids are wearing it oh yeah, and it's like great shit yeah yeah it was just built to last isn't it yeah um and that kind of really helped me along and and um yeah embedded that sustainability aspect into production and, and product and that kind of stuff so i was working in that in the surf store there um and we had these hand planes come in from the u.s and there was a company called Enjoy Hand Planes. Um, and I hadn't really discovered body surfing at that point. I'd spent the last you know, few years learning how to surf and had got to an extremely average level of surfing. Um, Were you doing that? Was that in Greece prior to coming over to... No, surf? no, 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 no. So this is... Yeah, this is a couple of years down the line of working at the Patagonia store. Okay, so you were learning been to in Australia you. for three, maybe even four years. Um, been learning to surf that whole time, like fell in love with the ocean over here. Um, and then, yeah, got these these hand planes in and I was super curious by the idea of, of body surfing. And the hand planes come in and there were these cool ones. They're made of like recycled surfboards and they used like old recycled Patagonia clothing and like inlaid them in in the fiberglass and just like really cool kind of product you could kind of run away with the creativity of making it and I was like, let's just give it a go so one of the other guys who I was working with a guy called Ben um yeah we, we grabbed some some fins and went down to Bondi Beach the I iconic Bondi um went for a, a body surf so we took out these hand planes um pair of fins and I swam out and the very first wave I got, swam onto this wave, popped my head up. I was on like this open, glassy, green wave, rode it all the way into the beach, got wrapped up in this tiny little barrel right on the beach um, and just popped up sandal in my hair, but with the biggest smile on my face. And I was like, what was that? <laughs> this was incredible. Like I've been surfing for three, four years um, and that was probably one of the best waves I'd ever caught. <laughs> And I was like, this is like so simple and so fun. And so after that session, I was just like super stoked, went home on a massive high, numerous waves on that day. Um, and I wanted to just find some equipment. Like I wanted to buy something decent. Um, these ones from the US are pretty expensive. They're coming in at like 250 Australian dollars. And I was like, there's got to be something in Australia, like an Australian made, like I want to buy local. 
went on to the internet to have a look for product, and there was nothing. I couldn't find a single hand plane in Australia. No one was making them. Um, no one was selling them. Um, the only ones I could find were these like really, really cheap old school plastic ones. Um, and I was like, man, this is way too fun to not be a thing. Um, and so, yeah, at that point I was working as, as a carpenter. And so I had access to a lot of kind of offcuts from work and um, I just pulled together some old reclaimed timbers, um, nutted out a few different designs in the garden. Um, to the <laughs> pissed off a lot of my housemates, creating a lot of a lot of crap and um, yeah, made made a few hand planes, took them down to the beach, tested out a few designs. Like was really kind of loving the idea. Um, but then the real eureka moment came when um, I made eighteen hand planes from reclaimed timbers from the job site over the course of probably two or three weeks. Kind of stumbled my way through it, learned a lot about the process. Um, and then signed up and got a stall at the markets down in Manly, Manly Beach in Sydney. And I had nothing. I had no payment terminal. I just had a table which I hired on the day and just my product laid on the table. No merch, no business cards, no nothing, just a big smiling face and something that I'd made. Um, and I was selling them for $90 each on the day, and I sold every single one. Wow. Completely sold out. And I just like left that day with the biggest smile on my face, a big wad of cash because I couldn't take any card payments. Um, and one of the guys who I sold one to in the morning, I remember it was just this random hand plane I made of two bits of wood with like an off cut of a door in the middle. Mm. Just like he loved the story of it. He went off and had a surf and he came back and he was like, mate, that's the most fun I've ever had in the ocean. And I'm <laughs> like 45 and surfing all my life. And I was like, that is huge. Um, so I left that day just like, this is it. This is a, this is, this is a thing. People love this. People want to buy this. Um, and the feedback is great, not only from my own, but from other people. Um, so, so let's give it a go. I had no idea about running a business, really, a small business. I knew that I always wanted to. It was always kind of a burning desire of mine. Um, and then all of a sudden I had some fuel for the fire and I ran with it. Mate, that's awesome. That's like every marketeer's dream. It's like you have a garage sale, you're like, oh, I'm going to make $1,000. No one makes money at those things, but you managed to, to do it. Yeah. Sell your handmade product. It was great. What a cool thing. Um, it, was, it was pretty shocking when you realised that there wasn't any in Australia for obviously Australia's got all the coastline and we're all about water sports, but none yeah. here. Well, what, what I discovered after I kind of did some more research into it um, was that Body surfing was huge in Australia in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Everyone, everyone body surfed. It was only when surf culture took over and surfboards become small enough that people could carry them themselves that surfing took off and became the super sexy sport that it is and everyone started surfing and body surfing kind of went underground. So did they have hand planes in the 70s? People used to make their own. Okay. People used to just cut them out of you know, whatever they could and... They used to use their thongs and yeah, yeah, cut yeah, out yeah. some chopping boards and Macca's trays and <laughs> whatever they could get their hands on um, to just go for a body surf. Because in the night, I guess when I was at high school, which was late 90s, uh, my mate had, it was the only, because uh, I've, I've never tried with the hand plane, mm. but I used to bodyboard um, and one of my mates had a glove. So it was just like a webbed glove. Um, and when the surf wasn't great or after 
you know, the surf session, we'd like dick around with that, with the, with the flippers. So much fun. Yeah, and that's, that's what it is. You know, it's just, I feel like every single time you go for a body surf, you have a good time. You mm. always leave with a smile on your face. I can't say that about surfing. It seems to be a lot more ego in, in surfing and stand-up surfing. Um, sometimes you can have a bad session, but it seems body surfing you can't. I find like, well, one like the, when I think of bodyboarding to surfing, like the barrier for entry is a lot lower. Mm. So it's, you can have fun really quickly. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, you can make more. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really in the surfing world, but I feel like you can make more out of shitty surf sometimes, or at least being closer to the wave. Yeah. Um, it's quite a rush you can be tucked into a tiny barrel and you're really lying in it and you can feel the rush of it around you. And that's a real thrill. I guess that's the same with the, with the hand wave. It's like even on you, in it. Even more so with, with body surfing. Because, yeah. you know, yeah, you can turn a, a, a mushy day into something that's super fun. Um, you know, you, you're very much immersed in the ocean. Um, with a bodyboard, you know, to a degree, but you're still on a board, sat on top of it. Yeah, when yep. you're body surfing, you're very much in the ocean. You know, it's you just rushing under you. You're flying across the wave surface. It's rushing across your belly. Um, you're just super connected. Um, so, does the hand plane give you a significant amount of buoyancy and ability to catch a wave that you would be otherwise very hard to? So, it doesn't provide buoyancy. A hand plane works. It's called a hand plane. It's because it's a planing device. So, once you start once you swam into a wave, you can kind of plant it on the water surface. Um, and as soon as it's planing, um, you can then apply downward pressure to the hand plane. Mm. And that in turn creates lift. So it helps to bring mm. your body up onto the water surface and reduce your drag. So yeah, it essentially enhances the body surfing experience. You can definitely body surf without a hand plane. Um, but the hand plane allows you to catch a wave easier go faster, ride the wave for longer and, and use it with a lot more control and steer yourself around. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is it typically done with flip flippers as well or you could like either way? Um, fins really help. So generally what I say, like if you're going body surfing, fins will help you catch the wave, hand plane helps you ride it. Mm. So the fins give you the speed to catch up with the wave because you've got to be going the same speed as the wave to catch it. Mm. And then once the wave kind of picks you up, the hand plane starts to plane. That's when the hand plane comes in and then you can really kind of steer yourself around and ride the wave all the way through. Um, but yeah, fin, fins are pretty critical. You can definitely do it without it if you stay within your depth. So yep, if you can yep. like kick off the sand cool. and jump into a wave at like a shorey, um, you still get a lot of fun out of that. But if you want to catch a wave from out back or, or ride it a long distance, then fins become, become necessary. Wicked. But still, it's pretty simple, right? I love the fact that no matter what you do, you just need equipment that can fit in your backpack. It's fins and a hand plane and that's it. You're good to go. Yeah, for me, like I really love, well, I like movement. I mean, that's why we're in the gym game and um, I like sports. I like like really fun things that are simple that you don't need a lot of gear for Yeah, type of thing. Like that really appeals to me. Like skating for me growing up was just like, just had a deck. There's sure. so many, you know, it was quite easy to jump on in and do it. Um, and that could just fit in your, well, you just carry it down your backpack type of thing, yeah. as opposed to like chucking a longboard on the on the racks. It's easy yeah. access. No, I love that. Like I used to have a motorbike when I first come to Sydney, drive that around. It just lends itself to 
So convenient surfing, you know, keep something in your backpack. Pre-COVID days, you know, you go on a weekend away just with carry-on luggage. And you've got all the surf gear that you'd need. Go and get a few barrels, have a great time. Like, just the simplicity of all was was a huge attractor for me. Um, and yeah, I think body surfing is very much coming back again now. So it's um, popular. Getting it's gaining? so yeah. I I started this eight years ago, um, and ever since then, year on year, it's been growing bigger and bigger. More and more people are uh, kind of realizing how pure and simple and fun body surfing is. Um, everyone's lives such hectic, busy lives these days. Something that you can, yeah, keep in your car, keep in your backpack, do on a whim, just pop down for a few waves, keep it simple. It's super attractive to a lot of people, um, which is awesome. Do me a favor, just um, get more into that when you when you talk to Paulie, because I'm losing you a little bit. Right. I don't want the people to miss anything of what you're saying, but. Um, the the simplicity of it that speaks to me a lot like what you're both saying about um like skateboarding i remember when i I did a season in whistler like pretty much probably everyone we know um but i remember snowboarding and really enjoying it and there was a part of me that was like oh this is like snowboarding is the thing but then i thought about it and it's like you got to have all this gear you you know you kit it out you're like immobile you got to have all the you know you got to have the deck and you got to get on the fucking chairlift and I remember thinking that that time when I had dabbled in surfing, I'm like, man, surfing is so much more simplistic than this. You just got your bodies, you got a board, maybe wearing a rash guard, and you're good to go. Yeah. Um, but now I look at surfing and I'm like, ah, oh, it's too much effort. You got to have a board <laughs> and the wax and shit. But so I, I can, I, you know, There's degrees of simplicity. Yeah. Like I got for my birthday um, just recently, I got some kite surfing lessons, and I'm I'm dreading that I love it. Because if I love it, like I couldn't think of a more equi- all the gear equipment heavy like sport, and yeah, I, I've recently in the last like four or five years fell in love with snowboarding as well. But then just the equipment, like it just starts clocking up, and you know, it racks up in dollars and and space, and yeah, I'm just like I'm gonna give it a go, kite surfing, because it does <laughs> sound awesome. But man, if and I you're a thrill if seeker. I love it, I'm like oh man, <laughs> like, like, I've already got like golf clubs, surfboards, snowboard gear fishing gear, <laughs> like it all, scuba gear, snorkeling gear, like it just <laughs> all racks up, you know, so keeping it simple. Just a question on the, how you use them. When you go out, you just have one plane, is that right? Yeah, it's a common question, yeah. A lot of people do think you need two, but generally the general rule is if you're gonna surf the wave to the left, you'd wear it on your left hand, mm-hmm. right for right. Yep. Um, but yeah, you only need one. Um, I've tried two, it becomes quite clumsy. Uh, it does act as a bit of a swim paddle. So you will see a lot of people who do kind of laps in the pool and some ocean swimming who use kind of small hand paddles to help them swim. Um, we need them to be a little bit bigger than that to actually create the surface area to provide you with enough lift. So they become a bit clumsy if you've got two of them on the go. But yeah, just one is enough. And how do you swim? Like how would you swim out when you've got one on? Can you still just do your freestyle stroke? Yeah, so that goes into the design a lot. When you're body surfing, 80% of what you're doing during the session is swimming. So it has to be able to swim well. Yeah. Um, so I very much factored that into the design. So yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a completely natural swimming stroke. So the board comes out on its edge, goes into the water on its edge, and then you open it for a paddle, and then out on its edge again. Um, but yeah, it, it, helps, it helps with swimming once you get used to it. It's one of those things. It's the same with fins. If you haven't worn fins before in the water, they feel a bit clumsy. Um, a hand plane will always feel a bit unnatural to someone who hasn't used one before, but that soon disappears once they get on a wave and feel the thrill. I want to get one. 
Yeah, me too. It's got me all amped. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll have a jungle session out for sure. Mate, that'd be cool. Mm. Um, tell me then, uh, tell us how it went from, so from this kernel where you're like, fuck, this is a thing, to now being what it is where what, what I see when I look at your brand is this huge emphasis on using recycled materials and you've got this whole production line that, that sort of factors in that and that, that seems to be at the forefront of the business. How did you, how did you get, what, what were the steps to get it to that point? How did it become what it is? Yeah, so I originally started ev making everything from timber. So I handmade every single one myself. Um, I got myself a workshop in Sydney um, and for about three years I was in there like five days a week kind of churning out product um, and building the business on the side and it got to the point where my full-time job like 40 hours a week was making the product and then I was trying to sell it on the side and run the business and grow the business and stuff and it was just totally unsustainable time-wise to do that um, and as much as I loved being in the workshop, you know, putting on a podcast, some music, dancing around, because it became so automated to me after doing it for so long, I could, I could make them without even thinking. Um, but it was just I couldn't grow the business if I kept that up. Um, so I knew I needed to scale up somehow. Um, so I explored my different options and, and plastic production was always an option. Like I knew it was fast. I knew it was cheap. But it just went against every single bone in my body to contemplate making especially an ocean-based product out of virgin plastics. So I was like, if I'm going to go down the plastic route, I'm going to explore recycled plastics. Um, and then I was like, well, if it's going to be used in the ocean, I might as well go down the ocean plastic route. I'd love to kind of deal with some of that problem. Um, so yeah, yeah, first step was to outsource my timber production. Um, so I had a few trips over to, to Bali to do a few kind of surf comps um, and met a few different people whilst I was over there um, through kind of a friend of a friend. Got connected up with someone over there who ran a woodworking shop who made kind of furniture and, and photo frames and that kind of stuff. So I went over to visit them. Um, and essentially, I'd, I've created all these kind of jigs, timber jigs, um, to manufacture the product kind of consistently um, once I was getting into some kind of decent stores and stuff, I needed a, a consistent product. It couldn't just be, you know, handmade with all these different variances and stuff in, in them. So, yeah, I just basically replicated my workshop over there, set up all my jigs. Um, you know, we got in a bunch of tools that I've been using, sent them over there, um, and then just had this kind of built this great relationship with this team. Um, and unfortunately, that only lasted about two or three years. Um, and then I, I, we, we've recently changed during COVID to another um, manufacturer and I haven't been able to go over yet. Um, so that's another story, which we'll get to probably later maybe. Uh, but yeah, so I outsourced the production of my timber hand planes. Um, and I remember getting that first shipment in on the boat. We had a pallet load of, of hand planes come in. And like when I got them and unpacked them, you know, they were good. Um, and I just looked at them in the amount of hours that I would have spent making these things and I've got a whole pallet load of them in my workshop already made um, they just needed to put handles on them. I was like, this is this is amazing like, oh, what am I going to do with all my time so satisfying yeah um, it did get a while to get to that point like we had a lot of to and throw good 12 months of sampling and getting it right but yeah I remember getting that first shipment in and was like this is that's like a year of my work 
you know, of, of me slugging myself out at the thing to get that many. Um, yeah, cause how, I, how I, many on a pallet, roughly? Uh, about 1,600. Wow. So I, I, could make, I could make about 50 a week yep. by myself. Like, o- like over the space of a week, it, each one would take about a week to make just because it needs like sanding, varnishing and everything. But I'd do a batch of like 50. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, it was, turns out with a team of professional guys doing it around the clock, um, you know, much more than just one person, they can make a lot more a lot quicker. Um, so that was super satisfying. Um, and then, yeah, I had all this time then to kind of focus on my next step, which was, you know, I want to I wanna scale up. It was still slow. It was still like a six-month turnaround on a production run for the Timber ones. And I knew that I was ta- started to talk to some some bigger bigger brands. You know, we was chatting to the likes of Rebel Sports, and I was like, if, if these guys jump on board and they want to put in a big order, it's going to be six months before I can get it out to them. And like, you know, then they want, they want stuff now. They want it quick. And I just wouldn't have been able to keep up with that stuff if those kind of big, big accounts came along. So I knew what I needed to scale up. So yeah, plastics was something I knew was going to be quick. Um, super naive going into it, thinking I would just buy some ocean plastics and stick it in a mold and you know, make hand planes and that'll be it. And I remember writing it all down um, from my kind of from concept to production. My initial plan was three months. Like I was like, it'd be fine. Like everything's <laughs> gonna be done in Australia. It's like super quick. I'll just get it done in three months. But um, yeah, no, three years <laughs> in the end to get my first official product out of the mold. Wow. Mm. And I'm guessing it cost a lot of money over those three years. Like yeah, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of stress, but. A lot of inspiration too. Like I was, I think my naivety played massively to my favor. Um, so when I started exploring the options of ocean plastics, I first just went on try to buy it and couldn't find it anywhere. I wanted I wanted pro, like cleaned, processed ocean plastics that we could put straight into an injection molder. And I had no idea about plastics production. Is injection molder what I imagine where it's like it melts down the material and then it pumps it into like a, like yeah. a mold and so then it sets? You can imagine, right? It's, it's actually a, a phenomenal machine. It's like an eight meter long machine. One half of it is just a massive hydraulic brake. The other half is this huge corkscrew in a tube and you put like shredded plastic in one end. The corkscrew's heated up and it sends all the plastic through and melts it as it goes through. And then the force of it just injects it into a mold at one end, the two clamp together, and the brakes just stop in the other half moving. Um, squirts it all into the mold, water rapidly s- gets sprayed around inside the mold through all these tubes, rapidly cools it, and then it pops open and the product falls out. <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to buy ocean plastics and I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, and it was becoming quite frustrating, but I was aware that other companies had used similar stuff overseas to make similar stuff, similar products. There's a company in the US that had made skateboards out of um, recycled fishing nets, which was nylon. Um, so I explored, first of all, I wanted to use plastic bottles. They're like one thing I hate the most, single-use plastic bottles. So I was like, I use that, and that's a plastic called PET. Um, soon discovered after talking to a few manufacturers that that was going to be near on impossible to injection mold recycled PET 
Um, generally, they're blown mold, and they're kind of once they've been blown mold, they're kind of much easier to recycle them into fabrics. Mm. Make kind of like recycled polyester kind of material. Um, so that was struck off, and then these other guys were making stuff out of nylon, which I knew had been done because they were already doing it. So I knew it was possible. It was just a matter of trying to get people to do it. Um, but then I discovered that nylon sinks in water. It's denser than water, seawater. That's why they use it for fishing nets. Right. So I was like, I can't really use or make a product from a material that sinks in the ocean when you know it's designed to be used in the ocean. My worst nightmare would be that it would be lost and then sunk and then just another piece of plastic to be washed around in the ocean for millennia. So then that was when struck off, and, and then what I was left with was all the mixed hard plastics, um, which are the likes of HDPE and polypropylene, but they're like your kind of bottle caps, toothbrushes, single-use cutlery, all, all the general rubbish that you see washed up on the beach. Yeah. 80% of that is kind of your HDPE and polypropylene. So then that was kind of what I was left with, um, this kind of mixed mixed mess. Um so then I just had to find find people that were willing to to work with that material. Um, so yeah, I did. I have ultimately set up an entire supply chain, but all I've essentially done is connected people that were doing great stuff already together. So how it worked was I came across this organisation called Eco Barge Clean Seas, and they're based up in the Whit Sundays, um, and they go out and have done for the last ten years on a barge and clean up all the beaches and islands within their vicinity around the Great Barrier Reef. Hmm. And they pull it all back in. They sort it all for their data records. And they need to provide the data in order to, to secure some of their funding. That's how they kind of finance the whole thing. But then ultimately the material just gets sent to landfill. Um, oh, wow. And it breaks their hearts because they pull it out of one environment and stick it in another. Like better out of the ocean, but still it's got, it's got no use and spend all that time sorting it and then it just gets chucked away so discovered those guys um they were collecting a lot of material and were desperate to find a use for it so i was like bingo like we need people like you we need someone who's collecting it done the the next stage in the supply chain was the missing link in many ways and it's the processing side of it um, because there was no demand for the material no one was processing it no one was collecting it. They were sorting it, a lot of people, and for data stuff, but no one was actually washing it and shredding it down and getting it into a usable material that someone like me could buy. Um, and that was something we needed to set up. So there was um, an organization called the Plastic Collective that I came across um, at like a sustainability event. And they were offering up these remote plastic recycling machines to help remote indigenous communities kind of deal with their, lo their own plastic waste locally. Um, a lot of recycling plants are just these big mega places that, you know, um, they get sent all the curbside material, but some of the local communities that don't have access to a lot of that, you know, get overwhelmed by the own their own waste. So they're offering up these little remote recycling machines. And I was like, this is perfect. Like we need something that can just kind of shred it. They had all this educational material around sorting it and, and washing it and, so we partnered up with those guys um, and they connected up with EcoBarge, um, sent them some of their machines, got funding for it, um, and all of a sudden they had a way to to process the material that they were collecting. Um, so that was another huge tick. 
And that, to be honest, that was the last tick in the list. It took me the longest, but it's the second stage in the supply chain. Um, the when, when you say it took you the longest, is, there, is the time spent at that stage of the business in you researching to try and find organizations that are doing this stuff and that, are, that you can even get a conversation with? And no, I, those, those two, two organizations, um, EcoBarge and Plastic Collective, were super keen. It was just a matter of trying to get them connected up and try to actually make something happen. That was the longest, the longest stretch in that that um, partnership. the The other one was um, finding a manufacturer. So there was a lot of issues with ocean plastics in that they're highly contaminated. Um, there's a lot of extra material in there that isn't necessarily plastic. There's a lot of shell fragments and salt and little bits of steel and all this random tiny little fragments of stuff. And when that gets put through an injection molding machine, mega expensive giant machines like I talked about before, um, it all has to get forced through this tiny little hole and anything that blocks it up jeopardizes the entire machine. Right. So people are really adverse to, to putting this kind of material through their machines. So I, I, called well over a hundred different manufacturers in Australia. Wow. I was just on a on a mission to find someone who would who would work with me to to experiment on this because I knew it could be done. I had this kind of I just knew it could be done. There was just no one willing. Everyone who I spoke to, I faced so many no's, don't bothers, it's gonna be too hard, it'll be too expensive, it'll never work, you'll never find anyone to work with. And that just like fueled my fire so much. I was like, I know this can be done. There's got to be someone out there. Um, so I actually got turned down by the manufacturer we ended up using originally. Um, called them, emailed them, told them my story and what I wanted to do. And they said, look, nah, we, we, sorry, we love what you're trying to do, but it's not going to work for us. So then I went, I went to all these different plastic events, recycling events, just trying to like you know, broaden my network in that space. And uh, the the director of this company um, did a speech during this kind of presentation, did a big presentation during this this conference. And his whole conference speech was around, we just need more people that want to make plastic, recycled plastic products. You know, that creates the pull through. We just need more people with more ideas, more products, and that will help the whole whole system. And that was the premise of his entire talk. So as soon as he came down off the stage, like <laughs> I just, I was... It's funny, all these events I was going to, I was like the only one not in a suit. <laughs> I'd go there in like my flannel shirts and you know, they'd all be there suited and booted and it's high-end kind of... Still got sea salt in your hair. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just went and cornered him as soon as he got off the stage. And was like, hey, look, my name's Ricky. This is kind of what I've been trying to do. I want to make this product out of ocean plastics. And he was super inspired by it. He was like, that's such a good idea. Like, I know that it's going to be difficult, but, you know, it can be done. I'm sure it can be done. Um, and we agreed to, to work together on it. Um, so it turned out like the idea had never got to him. You know, it only made it to the front desk. Wow. Which I guess happened in so many instances. Um, the people would actually be doing the work who were in charge of the machines, probably even never got to see my emails or hear my calls. Um, it just got rejected at the first, first hurdle. Um, so yeah, he agreed to work with us. And without him, I think, you know, the whole thing would have fell apart because I needed that experimental phase i needed someone with knowledge in the industry um, access to machines so we we played around with some kind of material that we had managed to source in small amounts 
um, made up like a, a, a crappy little like mold just to kind of make a basic shape to see if we could get this material through the machine and, and injection molded into something that was um, decent. Um, and then it got to the point where we, were like, we couldn't really experiment properly without a proper mold. Um, and at this point, yeah, I chucked a fair amount of money into it. Um, and the mold was going to cost about $20,000 to buy, just the mold itself. Um, and I'd already chucked far too much money and time at this thing. And we had about that saved in our kind of house deposit <laughs> account. <laughs> um, and so I remember like reaching this point and he was like, Mark was his name, the director of this company. He was like, look, we just need a mold. We need a decent, proper mold um, to, to actually make this experiment work. Um, and I was like, oh, man, like, I, need, I need proof that it does work before I buy the mold. And it was just like this like, stalemate. So I remember going home and it was a difficult conversation, sort of talking to my wife. I was like, you know how like, we want to save for a house and stuff? Um, how about <laughs> <laughs> we buy a $20,000 lump of metal instead and, and hope it works? Um, so she she's always been super supportive of this whole thing. She wasn't over the moon about spending kind of our joint savings. I'd always managed to use the business's earnings to put back into it to this point. Um, but here all of a sudden we need to just pull 20 grand out of our personal savings um, and give it a go. And I had no idea if it was going to really work, um, but I had to do it just to trial. So that's what we did. We chucked every penny we had at this mold at that point um made the mold that was a whole process in itself um i had no idea what i was doing who i was working with and i ended up going with an australian company because i needed that kind of connection to someone i could talk to on the phone most molds are made overseas china um but i needed i needed someone to give me confidence um because i had no idea about it made the mold um got a whole bunch of material processed through EcoBarge and the Plastic Collectors uh, machine. Um, sent down a big bunch of material on a truck, got there, had the mold set up, um, we mixed it up, we created a recipe over the kind of previous 12 months or around the right kind of mix of material to use, the different types and, and what else we needed to include in it. Made up the recipe, put it through the machine and, and turned out a thousand units you know, in the course of like over a day. And it was a roaring success. And like I just burst into tears. I was like, I couldn't believe it actually wow. actually worked. Um, and I'd created, you know, a thousand units in a day. And I was like, this is, this is the future. Like, this is how it's going to be for us. This is where the company's going to be at. Let's just scale this, this production supply chain up. Mate, how cool is that? It was it was it was heavy, and that was like yeah, it was a solid three year process um, to get to that point. Um, and then yeah, then it was a case of <laughs> trying to brand it, market it, um, the other stuff. It. Yeah, you know, after just spending all that time trying to learn how how to produce it, but I made a lot of good good friends, good connections along the way, um, along that story. Like a lot of people knew about what I was trying to achieve, and I attended a lot of events, sustainability events, um, recycling, plastic events, everything. And I built up a pretty good network. Um, so I was pretty well supported when I came to kind of being like, hey, finally done it. And everyone would, you know, it was stoked for me, which was awesome. Um, and then, yeah, so partnered up with 
with an agency and, and built the brand out and, and put it to market. Unbelievable. Um, just in, I want to, there's a lot, there's a lot to pick apart there. And I want to know about some of these, you know, some of the challenges you would have faced looking back at what it's taken you to get to where you are. Would you do it again? No, no, no. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's what saved me. My naivety of, of not knowing how hard it was going to be and not knowing kind of how long it was going to take just, you know, got me through the, the daily grind of, of working on it. And, you know, I wasn't really paying myself any money during that time. I was, you know, just putting it all back into it. Um, but just thinking that I could get it done in the short term kind of got me through. Um, but it's a battle that I face now. I now know that, you know, if I want to do anything new and challenging again, I know that I can do it, but I know how hard it is. So yeah. now I have experience in, in battling through. That's another whole thing to deal with. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't, at that stage in my life, if I knew how hard it was going to be, I don't think I would have done it. Now, now I probably will give it a go, but I'm aware of difficulty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I would have chosen something a bit easier. <laughs> so the whole time um, you're still manufacturing the wooden ones over in Bali? Yes, so that, that's remained a constant um, this whole time. Okay, throughout um, that process. Timber, the timber today. ones were kind of where my heart lied at the beginning. Um, we did some great stuff with it. I had the workshop. We used to do, we used to run community workshops as well. So we'd get people coming in, um, groups of five, and I'd take them through the shaping process throughout the course of a day, and they would leave with a hand plane that they'd made themselves at the end of the day. And that kind of stuff was like super heartwarming. Mm -hmm. Everyone absolutely loved it. And it was it was a great time, and, and you know the timber ones have brought a lot of love to me and, and to the business, and I had a great time building that side of it out. Um, and they they've remained a staple since the very beginning. Um, but the the bad fish, the ocean plastic hand plane, mm. um, is definitely what's taken our business to to kind of the next level. Well, you needed to upscale it so you could provide the joy to more people. Well, that was the kind of <laughs> drive too. I that's. It's funny, like as much as I want to market the product, body surfing itself is still extremely niche. So half of my marketing stuff is around just marketing body surfing. Yeah, I can't if I you know, I can't sell a product if people don't know what body surfing is. Um, so yeah, I've been pushing the body surfing scene from the very beginning as well, um, and building out kind of a strong community in that. And that's been a huge kind of passion driver for me, watching that grow. Um, we, we have been, up until COVID, running kind of annual body surfing events and, and competitions and um, you know, gaining a fair bit of media from that, which has been awesome. The media we got from the Ocean Plastics hand plane has done wonders for body surfing because we've won, we won competitions with the National Geographic, um, with Amazon, um, so some big, big kind of names, but for the recycled plastic supply chain. And so body surfing has kind of got kind of the marketing boost just from being included in all of that PR that we've got from all that amazing stuff we've achieved through the ocean plastic supply chain. So it's kind of boosted both. Um, but yeah, body surfing is, is still something that I'm continually pushing and marketing and growing. Um, and, and we're just going along for the ride. Has that supply chain been leveraged by other 
products or other brands? Like have other organizations been able to access what you've created? That is, that is my goal. Um, not yet. Unfortunately, the supply chain that we've got set up, um, because we've been growing quickly, it's only really servicing our needs. It's relatively small scale. Um, so I would love to be able to get it to a position where I can you know, on-sell the material to other people who want to include it into their products um, and also utilize it for additional products that I want to manufacture. So I've been working on that for the last couple of years, trying to upscale that, that supply chain stuff and make it much more industrial um, on a much more industrial scale. So that's something that's been ongoing um, and we're working rapidly towards, hopefully, because if we can set that up, um, then yeah, it opens it up to, to everyone, which would be my goal. But yeah, I think from what it is quite small scale, what we're doing in that it only services my business. But I have said from the start that I got, I love the fact that this product is, or is hopefully viewed as a positive case study for utilizing ocean plastics. Like if someone can see what we've done with the bad fish, and go, that's cool, I want to do something similar. That's like the ultimate goal for me. If people can be inspired by it and go out and try something different and push the limits and, you know, maybe in the in the recycled plastic space, but maybe in something else as well. Um, and also, like, we... So the mix that we use for the, for the bad fish, we're using 33% ocean plastics mm-hmm. and then 66% curbside collected plastics, so the stuff that people put into their recycling bins at home. Um, and that stuff we do just buy. And we're pretty open about that and pretty transparent about that. We buy that material. It's processed on an industrial scale from curbside collections and it's ma- predominantly things like milk bottle cartons. And that's that's readily available. So I think, you know, what I, I've kind of pushed a lot is if we can make these products using all this highly contaminated ocean plastics and achieve what we've achieved with that, there's no real excuse why other people aren't utilizing this readily available, much purer, much cleaner, much cheaper post-consumer recycled plastics that's already out there. Um, so just you know, get amongst it and start using that instead of buying virgin. I wanted to ask about the, the plastic recycling piece because occasionally you see something that makes you think that we're going to sort of crack the code on all of this single-use plastic stuff. I remember seeing a video going around on Facebook years ago of a I think is a guy in Japan who invented a machine and you just put plastic into it and it converts the plastic back to oil Mm. and then the oil can be used in you know motors and stuff and I got no idea if there's any credibility to the video whatsoever but it's one of those things you watch and you go oh wow that's optimistic like amazing I can just you can throw shopping bags into it and your coffee cup lids Mm. but then you see something like um uh what was the show, um, ABC, Craig Rucastle, uh, on the, the truth about recycling. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And showing that a whole bunch of the stuff that we attempt to recycle, you know, we've got a good system for it, uh, supposedly mm. domestic recycling in Australia, but a lot of it ends up in, in landfill. And you're like, oh, well, that's depressing. Like, what what is the actual state of the recycling piece? Is Is what you're doing just a very small drop in you know, in the right or a very small step in the right direction or is there actually a, a shift globally or even domestically here where the tide's changing on that? No pun intended. Uh-huh. Um, we are, like, I'm very aware that we, 
we are offering a very small solution to a small part of the problem. Um, but I just hope that it inspires much larger change. I think one thing that's helped the Australian recycle industry is there was the ban on exporting our waste to China um, that came into force a couple of years ago. And that's kind of forced Australia to deal with their waste domestically. We used to just export it. Everything used to be kind of collected, bailed up, and then would sell it to China. What would, China, they, what would they do with it? They'd recycle it. Right. They'd recycle it and make it into new stuff. Um, but much cheaper than what we could do it over here. So we used to just do that, and that was Australia's way. You know, we'd just ship it overseas. But then China started getting a lot more material than they could handle because they were buying it from everywhere. And the Australian stuff was, you know, pretty contaminated. It wasn't as pure as what they wanted. So they put a ban on, on any material coming in from Australia. So all of a sudden, we just had all this material that was just get stockpiled because we didn't have the infrastructure to deal with it. Um, and since then, there's been, like, a large amount of headway made in, in recycling plastics on an industrial scale. Uh, but it's still a long way to go. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely across the kind of domestic waste recycling in within Australia but it's it's making moves because we have to because the waste crisis is becoming too much um, in terms of the amount of waste that we've actually got in Australia now because we can't ship it anywhere um, but yeah our, our timing worked out quite well in that when we released the bad fish it kind of coincided with that war on waste ABC show and that really made people aware of the situation in Australia and what problem we had a big problem at home you know it wasn't something that we could just ship overseas anymore um and that's one thing i've loved about this whole thing is you know we're entirely the ocean plastic supply chain is australia entirely australian um, we use australian waste we use australian suppliers and processes and collectors and manufacturers and i'm an australian brand um, and yeah the, the ocean plastic supply chain was is still the only operational Australian ocean plastic supply chain in existence. There's no other people in Australia are, are manufacturing products from ocean plastics, but it's imported from overseas. It's just expensive to set up the infrastructure to process it here and deal with our own waste. Um, so on, so on that, uh, and having people take to to using um, that supply chain and it growing. What do you need? Do you need? Well, it's expensive, so you need money. Do you need demand? Do you need Government support, needs, so there's like there's, it needs a, a large amount of machinery, a large amount of space to house that machinery, but the machinery is still like experimental in terms of you need these kind of high end purifiers to to um, clean out the material and make it usable for somebody else. So I guess you need people who want to use it, so that pe so that someone would. Create a plant and build those that's, machines that's and invest catch, in it. That's the catch twenty two, right? Yeah, because no one knows yet. There's no real demand for it because oh. it's not available. And you're but one it's not example available because there's success. no demand for it, right? Um, so yeah, we're just showcasing what can be done, which is what I hope will inspire other people. But yeah, we're working around some some hopefully pretty large grants and, and things at the moment to get to get that set up. Um, but it just needs to be done. It needs to be set up and operational for then people to wake up and be like, oh, this material's there, we can just buy it, great. So then someone like me, hopefully with a much larger business coming out, when they go, oh, I just want to make it out of ocean plastics, I'll just buy it. They can go online and go, oh, great, someone's selling it, I'll buy it. As you said, like, 
like the, the the laws changing, you know, the exports of plastic from here, that's like a something that is a real catalyst, which pushes things in the right direction. You kind of feel like in the future it would take something like, well, the crisis reaches a tipping point mm. or some sort of law changes or there's a disaster or something like that that happens in the roof that pushes all the attention and the attention gets to the politicians and the policy changes or something like that. That's definitely the case at the moment, yeah, mm. with our export. And it, it, it's inspired a lot and, and has forced a lot of action in a good way. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. Cool. Talk to me about the, you mentioned you wouldn't do it again. And I, I remember chatting to a guy years ago. I had a wild idea for a product I wanted to create, like a machine. And um, I was talking to my cousin about it. Cousin Emma, she might be listening. Shout out, Cousin Em. And she said... Um, Oh, I know a guy, he invented a, like an espresso machine and it's like, it's done really well. And um, she said, I could put you in touch with him if you want. Like, and I was like, yeah, mad. And I chatted to the guy and he's like, what do you want to do? And I told him my idea and he said, awesome. And I was like, so what do you think? And he said, man, I'll tell you what, if I was going to, if I knew what I knew now about what it's taken me to get this thing into, onto the market, he's like, no fucking chance I'd do it again. He said, it's been the hardest decade of my life. <laughs> and I was like... That was all I needed to hear. You know, I, I never wanted to chase it bad enough. But, um, you know, that, that idea of like having an idea and then whatever, putting the time into developing it and making it a business, it's, it's the story of small businesses, right? Whether it's gyms or it's hand planes or it's, you know, someone wants to run a corner store. It's like you've got to take that plunge at some point. Yeah, and I think for me, especially in a lot of small business, like I would never have got to where I've got with it if I didn't love it. Like I have such a deep passion for body surfing, but also kind of doing my part and sustainability and um, giving back. And it's just kind of built into me. And like, if I didn't love it and really want it, um, I wouldn't have been able to get through. There were so many times, as it is with any small business, where it's just so easy to just give up and just stop and be like, you know what, this is just too hard. Um, I can't do this anymore. But I was like, I want to make body surfing as big as it should be and you know get as many people in and enjoying the ocean as as it deserves and if you know that takes me pushing this whole recycled plastics supply chain to new levels then that's what i'm going to do um, and yeah i think with anything especially like the gym too like if you guys didn't love movement and getting people moving and you know it'd be so hard to run a gym like I, you need that passion if you're going to start something what are like talk to me about what some of those those hurdles that you face are and like not even necessarily like some of the emotional stuff because for people listening they're like oh like he's in a workshop he's you know he did the markets it's great he had a bunch of cash then he had, he's doing the community workshops and then you know you're hooking up with people in the wit sundays it, like it all sounds quite nice yeah what are the what's the you know what's the dark side of this whole journey to be honest most of it was financial um you know i I came to Australia with not much um, and I didn't have much kind of wealth behind me. So to start a business, it was always going to be grown organically. The business itself funded the entire expansion of, of the business. So every kind of dollar that it would earn, I would chuck back into it. Um, and I took like a massive pay cut um, and, you know, was working part time a couple of days a week in a surf store. Um, just to kind of keep the dollars rolling over so I could fund this whole passion project. And then it was just convincing people that, you know, 
was onto a good thing and it was going to be great and one day it'll it'll work and it'll be good and everyone's just like man like why don't you just get a job (laughs) 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 Uh, but no I was determined Um, and yeah I think that's kind of when I when I broke down because I did have this kind of deep belief in myself that I could do this and get this done Um, and that got me through most of it Um, but yeah I think to be honest most of the stresses for me were, were financial ones when the, the the bank accounts weren't looking great, you know, and we, we'd have, you know, randomly with, with any sort of business, things can affect you out of the blue that you don't realise, um, and, you know, your revenue drops that you don't expect or your forecasting isn't quite spot on and, you know, you, you get up to all these hurdles where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of the month or I don't know how I'm going to buy this this bunch of material or, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay the retainer on my agency this month and, that kind of stuff adds a lot of strain, um, but it's just those glory moments when you kind of sign up a new big, a new big account, or you know you, you produce the first production run out of the machine you've been working on for three years. Like mm. all that stuff, like far outweighed that when it happened. Just in the times where nothing was really moving, and you know nothing was kind of going in the right direction, um, and then you've got that financial squeeze as well. You're like. Ugh could just go back to being a carpenter um, and that was also a big pain point it was so easy for me to do that it was go back into my wife's family business and just kind of earn good money again doing carpentry and I was you know just squeezed uh, but no nah, passion knowledge that I could get it done and a love for body surfing kind of got me through would it could you did it ever put any strain on your relationship only only indirectly through financial yeah um uh, my wife lucy she's amazing she's kind of as passionate if not more passionate around kind of sustainability and um, that's been her whole career path too and she's always supported it from the very very beginning but it's just when you know it's it's an idea in my head i can kind of see the vision and she has faith that you know my vision is is correct and you know my faith in myself is justified but then when you start to see the kind of dollars disappear and you know you're chucking it all into an idea um that adds a bit of strain anywhere but no not 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 really um and then if anything it kind of has solidified us as a complete team and unit you know because you know i wouldn't have been able to get through this whole thing without her support and in those darker times when they're like you know what you know what does it really matter you know if we're going to look back in 10 years time and you know we you had to go and get another job like is it going to be the worst thing just go for it and you know if it doesn't work it doesn't work we're going to be fine and you need that kind of pep talk sometimes. Um, so, yeah, and in the end, ch- achieving it together very much as a team um, has kind of solidified us as a, as a rock-solid unit. It's beautiful. <laughs> Man, it really is. It's, um, yeah, I think it's everyone's relationship's different, you know, and to be able to have that part, like to be able to have the sort of partnership in a business sense or the support from your, you know, from your, from the person you're married to or, or partnered with, whatever. It's, it's, um, it's not always uh, necessarily there. So the fact that it is, and that you, you know, you've kind of broken through to a stage. I'm sure with your business, there's still heaps of parts of it that don't work as efficiently as you like, and it's not like, of course, it's not always smooth sailing. It's another pun for you, but, um, <laughs> but, but you know, it, more or less, like you've reached a point where it's like, okay, yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like you're at a point of relative stability now? For the last, so we launched the Bad Fish in 2019. Um, and 
after that first year, you know, within six months, we'd made all the money back on the expenses I'd outlaid over the last few years to set it all up. Wow. Um, and so I completely broke even on all the stuff I'd outlaid, put the money back into our savings account. Um, and so ever since then, it's been relatively stable. But then it's just a case of now, like, you know, we've been growing year on year since. COVID came along. We got very lucky in COVID. I'm extremely grateful for that. We're one of the businesses that did very well out of it. People just screaming to get out and do something in nature and you know, be outdoors and start a new hobby and online shopping. So we did extremely well out of that. Um, and I'm just grateful that, yeah, for the last few years, we've been a lot less financial stress. It's just about growth and security now. I really want to make it a sustainable business economically. Um, so when we do hit these kind of random declines in business, whether it is a COVID or something similar, um, you know, continuity is important now. So we're branching out. I'm going, we're launching it in the US this year, which would be incredible for us, hopefully. The issue with the with running a, a surf product is that it's entirely seasonal. Um, for us, it's based around Christmas, summertime, people are at the beach, it's sunny. And then in the winter, it kind of really tails off and it's just the diehard kind of surf community that might be interested in buying. Um, but around the summertime, Christmas time, the gift market is massive. So we're really pushing that. But the, the beauty of of launching in the US and pushing it over there is we'll have back-to-back -back summers. So it'll be Australian summer to US summer. Um, so we should have a year-round kind of constant revenue stream, which would make things a lot a lot cruisier, a lot safer, um, and a lot less stressful in those winter times because on our off-season, we're, we're outlaying a lot of costs, we're buying a lot of products, we're building up stockpiles, but we're not really selling much. Yeah. Um, so you, it's a big spending phase recoup it all back and then some in in the summer months but yeah with the u.s hopefully if it all goes to plan this year um, that should kind of add a lot of security which is exciting would you be shipping your product to the u.s or would you be establishing the supply chain there and manufacturing locally initially we're shipping product over yeah um and that's the way we're going to kind of start at the moment with a third-party logistics company over there and i would still run it all from here um, and we're going to launch that uh, and try it for a season and then reassess at the end of that whether it's if it does really really well um, we might look at building out that supply chain over there and getting product manufactured domestically in the US um, and then get someone to manage it over there but I want to build it up to a point where it's kind of attractive to someone in the first place to, to go look it sells in the US resonates with People here, like it's there's a massive market over there, much bigger than mm. than Australia. Yeah, so it's um it's pretty exciting, and it's um, out. It's kind of same like culturally, it's yeah. the same like and the surf surf groups one it's group. Very similar culture, um, just a lot more people. Yeah, so it should should go go quite well, and I think that's what's really amazing actually about body surfing is the the global community side of things. There's so much love for the sport i personally haven't met a bad body surfer as in kind of personal traits everyone who loves body surfing just seems to be like pure kind of you know happy go lucky 
don't really have much ego just get in there and have have a blast have some fun and, and share it with friends and um that's definitely brought me a lot out of the business is building out that community aspect and and being a part of it and watch it grow can i ask about the the transition there which is you went from being the craftsman with an idea in the workshop making the plan selling them you know being able to sell it from this from the creator's point of view and and obviously that's so compelling for someone that meets when you meet someone who's used their hands to make the thing that they're trying to you know you always buy it whatever whether it's salami or it's yeah. fucking hand planes right um but then you your business grows and this is relevant to i think about you know the gym here ask what we're going through and what happens in the evolution of any growing small business you you generally stop being the craftsperson and you move in towards like like you said like now you're looking at attacking a new market um there's supply chain things there's relationship management all those things how do you like how have you navigated that has that been something that was inherent to you or were you kind of finding your feet as you went the whole process for me has been trial and error and finding my feet as i go along um but i've tried to keep the brand as human as possible it's still just me it's kind of built around stuff that i love and, and on my passion um and i'd hate for someone to come along discover our brand and not kind of discover who or what's behind it it's not just like an online brand that's just got no kind of human aspect to it i want it to be a human kind of connection um and so emails that they get are, are directly from me um and created by me even if it's an automated one um, and it has my kind of tone and, and stuff across it um that has been a conscious thing just try to keep that i don't want it to be like you know generically from corporate whatever um it's always been like from me um and it may not always be me um it may be somebody else down the line but i always want to keep that kind of human human aspect i don't want to be considered a, a robot on a website that sells product i want to be humans selling to humans and we try to we try to incorporate that into all of our branding and our, our, our packaging and all that kind of stuff it's um yeah you're dealing with it with a human being which is important to us yeah looking looking at it like looking at the website and stuff that it comes through mm. you know it's really cool like it's yeah it's it's very refreshing can yeah. i ask you about the marketing um cuz like amazing story that's really inspirational and like you told me that in the past in the gym, but I hadn't heard it in this much detail. A lot of hurdles, a lot of little hurdles along the way. Um, and also just, I mean, it's pretty incredible. The, the product that's in the ocean, it's taken from plastics, the stuff that you went through. Um, is it hard to market it? And, and how are you marketing it uh, currently? Because um, to me, it seems like it sells itself as long as you tell that story. That is that is the, the, the trick of it at the moment. Um, I end up doing a lot of events, a lot of markets, a lot of exhibitions and and such and so I get to talk to people a lot face to face and and sell the product and like you said Joey like if someone's there and they they feel your passion and you're the creator it's such an easy sell. Um so we've got to really try and get that message across but yeah I would always sell people on the concept of body surfing first especially with the new badfish hand plane people 
love the idea of body surfing. It sounds so pure and romantic when like they haven't really kind of thought of it before, like yeah. gliding across the surface of the ocean with just your body. That's amazing. And it is. And so it's a really kind of easy story to tell. And then they're immediately kind of caught by that. And then throwing on top the fact that, you know, you can help clean up Australian beaches, pull some plastic out of the Great Barrier Reef um, and feel you know, guilt-free about the product that you've bought and go and use it and have some fun in the ocean knowing you've helped clean the ocean. Mm. That, um, yeah, that resonates very well with our, with our customer base. So that's the kind of messages that we put, like body surfing is great and you get to help save the planet. We kind of use that tagline that um, with, with the bad fish, you get to body surf and clean the ocean at the same time. And it's that simple. Had an idea. Tell me. Um, no, I was just thinking about it before. It seems like the story is so compelling and I'd love to know it in more detail along the way. And I can't help but think it would be really awesome uh, as a documentary. Um, and I think – my mind's just thinking about um, – it would be quite – well, I, I, don't, I have no idea, but it sounds like something that you definitely – producers could get funding for quite easily because of the – the two stories that it's kind of telling and there's multiple narratives in there about you and then there's the bigger picture and the thing that you're solving and it's one of those type of narratives where the job's not done and the mission's not done but you're the little guy making you know that that mark and you're trying it trying for it to catch on making big waves making big wave joey that's number three yeah the, um, um, and you're a compassionate uh you're a, you're a charismatic guy that speaks really well and I think it'd be like unreal to see that we've on got, Netflix. <laughs> I think we've got like three unfinished documentaries. There you go. <laughs> happening. So it's, it's always happening. like someone comes along with experiencing kind of, you know, documentary making and are super inspired by our story. I'm like, man, I want to tell this story. I need to film mm. this. And we do a bunch of filming and we go surfing and they're like super great. And then it's like, time drags on and they're kind of like, they're, oh, I'm picking up this extra work and <laughs> we haven't had the funds to kind of, fund an entire documentary to be made um, and then it kind of fizzles out and then the next person comes along and they're like this is so great and I'm like yeah great let's <laughs> do some filming and I've got plenty of footage you can pull that in if you want um, fuck we know that story yeah so that's that's, <laughs> that's happened a lot so I okay. think I've got like three unfinished documentaries but we've been on TV numerous times and okay. just exposing ourselves on the screen does wonders for us mm. um, We've done we've done quite well out of being on screen, so I think a documentary I agree would be amazing. And I'd love to just capture this. Like I have done a few few podcasts telling the story. Mm. I do like telling the story. Like it, it inspires me again every time I go through it. You get to go back, and I mm. would love to just capture it all in, in like a nice, neat, concise documentary. Just to have it there would be would be incredible. So I'd love to do that one day. I feel like if you if you found the right people, like say someone came to you to try and make a documentary. But, and, you know, this is just me thinking yep. at some stage in the business, maybe it's when you're attacking the US or you're at a point where you want this facade of just to have the story told yep. is a, trying to trying to find the producers yep. who are experienced enough that can go get the funding yep. um, and they know how to get the funding because the pitch is there and the funding comes because of climate change is, is an issue right now and yada, yada. That would be incredible. Yep. Yeah, no, it's definitely we know some. on my to-do list <laughs> to get that done. Um, but yeah, I just love this. It's the body surfing has given me so much. Um, like I, I, body surfing got me down my fitness route too. 
Um, it's it's the reason I, I go to the gym a lot now. You know, I got massively into body surfing. The um, beauty around the fact that body surfing is kind of a relatively untold underground sport is that the limits of body surfing haven't really been pushed. And so we, you know, a group of us in Sydney, I, I brought together a number of body surfers to, you know, as ambassadors for, for my brand. And through that kind of just, you know, became very good mates and all very competent, incredible oceanmen. And we w- we've been continually pushing the limits of body surfing within Australia. And we, we, we started taking ourselves to some, some crazy waves. You know, once, once you're up and planing on a, on a wave, you know, there's not much difference between you and, and a bodyboarder. You just go a little bit slower. Um, so you, you can surf some pretty massive waves. I mean, we've, we've been pushing it and riding waves that have never been body surfed. And that's still a thing, you know. You can't really say that about many waves for surfing or bodyboarding anymore because almost everything has been bodyboarded or surfed. But not everything has been body surfed. So we started, push- cool. we started pushing the limits on, on what we would body surf. And it turns out if you start doing some big ocean stuff, like you need, you need some serious fitness to kind of cope with some of those situations. Um, and, you know, you, you, you experience some pretty large wipeouts and joints are pretty exposed during those kind of moments. So kind of getting some joint security and strength in there, um, building lung capacity and breath hole capacity. Um, that kind of really forced me down the the, um, the fitness route. You know, I, I turned I turned thirty and my my body was slightly breaking down. I was playing soccer, um, body surfing some crazy waves and getting knocked about all over the place and feeling like not comfortable in some kind of gnarly ocean scenarios, being held underwater. And I was like, man, I, I'm not I'm not going to last forever mm. if I if I don't do something about this. So. Yeah, that, that sent, me, sent me down on the, the fitness journey um, and, and led me to you guys. So now I'm, I'm training here and building out my stuff so that I can actually do what I want to do and, and not get hurt too much. It's a really great motivation to stay, to stay healthy. Well, yeah, if I, if I wanted to do the things that I want to do, then I have to be fit to do it. Um, and so that's kind of where the inspiration comes to, to get back into the gym and, and build out my fitness. Can you tell us of some of the biggest waves and and the spot that that was at? That you've yeah, I, th- I think that the heaviest wave, caught. it's a pretty world-famous one in, in big wave surfing, is Cape Salander out in Cornell and Cronulla. Um, it's called Hours. Um, mm. They held back in 2016, which kind of really put it on the map, um, Cape Fear competition where they brought big wave surfers from all over the world and they were towing them in on jet skis on this massive swell in 2016. And it's just this huge barreling wave, kind of, you know, 20, 30 foot faces and beyond, but thick ocean swell. You know, it comes, the, the swell comes from extremely deep water and hits a very shallow shelf. And just like the weight of the ocean just folds over into like barrels with, with like a lip on the barrel that's kind of like six, seven foot thick. Just walls of water, um, and it's it's unbelievably thrilling and exciting and terrifying, um, especially when you're just kind of body surfing it because you feel so insignificant and you're just trying to like tame the beast. But man, it is addictive. It is so much fun. Is that it's quite um, that breaks quite close to a rock face, doesn't it? Yeah, and that adds to its scary factor. So it's 
it's no more than 20 meters from the rocks um, and it runs kind of pretty much along the rocks but on certain days if there's kind of some north in the swell it lands on the rocks yeah so you gotta like start to pick your waves and choose them and know which ones are, are going to do that and which ones aren't and so like the whole time you're in the barrel you're staring at rocks at the end of the barrel Ugh. and you like if you get wiped out like you're at risk of kind of being thrown into that scenario um so it, i mean most of the time to be honest because there's so much water pushing against the rocks that even if you wipe out in that scenario it pushes against the rocks and across them but like it's still in the water so you kind of get dragged across in front of the rocks but not on them if that right. makes any sense because there's so much force like you, if you're trying to travel forward towards the rocks there's so much sideways action on the water that just pulls you across rather than into and water's coming back like it's come bouncing off the rocks exactly okay, but, um, you definitely like, sounds pretty safe yeah <laughs> you definitely hit some hard stuff and there's definitely been quite a few horrific injuries and stuff out there um but that's why you, i guess your body needs to be in a pretty good shape to deal with some of those stuff and you know you can always pick your wave i think a lot of the major problems out there have occurred on waves that shouldn't have been ridden you know waves that are shaping up too great a lot of guys tow into it on on jet skis you know they pick their wave well before it's like even on the slab it's just a a, a lump of swell and then they're towing behind jet ski yeah yeah this one and they're just so committed already that once they pull into it you know it, it could be slight the angle could be slightly off and then they're in a world of trouble and uh, like so with the jet ski approach you can commit to something that's perhaps not a good choice yeah right yeah. you're pressured into because you've already ridden it for 80 meters yeah yeah exactly and you've got so much speed and um yeah you're already into it and it takes so much effort to kind of set all that up and pull yourself in on a jet ski and you know they kind of just want to give it some of these guys who surf some of the bigger stuff out there they're just like absolute adrenaline junkies and just want to give it a go regardless if it's a suicide wave or not was that the wave was it richie vass who dropped who surfed it with yeah, the richie's out there a lot yeah did he do it with the um the inflatable alligator after steve Irwin died uh ever see that I, footage if he did i don't know i don't know if he it sounds like something richie mm, would do yeah he dropped it on this fucking flimsy i'm sure i could be misquoting there but yeah, it's not. Like he gets creamed. Can yeah, you yeah. tow in on the while body surfing? It's not yet no. been done, but no. again, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's got to work it out. Uh, it's it's just exciting that that kind of stuff has never <laughs> happened. I mean, there's there's been a few clips of people uh, doing like the bodyboard to body surf transfer, mm. um, and lots of amazing clips of surfers. There was one of Kelly Slater who was a pipeline, and he dropped into this barrel um, on his board. Um, and then came off in the barrel, but then continued to body surf yeah, yeah. his way out of the barrel. <laughs> and then his surfboard flicked up behind him and he grabbed his surfboard and jumped back on and, and finished the wave no off way. the board. And it's like, <laughs> that kind of stuff is great because that gets viral through the surf community and it yep. puts, puts body surfing on the map. And they're like, whoa, you can make a barrel body surfing? You're like, hell yeah. In that size? <laughs> That's mad. Yeah. I saw yesterday um, it's some, uh, a guy surfing someone drops in it's a friendly thing but the barrel's still like five foot mm. and they're tucking in and they're both kind of in it and one gets knocked off and his board kind of hangs out and the other guy picks it up and he's <laughs> surfing and he's holding that guy's board right and then he jumps he swaps Sports, boards somehow yeah 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 oh man it Pretty looks amazing. so cool um, yeah but yeah it's cool it's interesting in the community too like i don't know if you mentioned before that you body surf um body boarded sorry poorly like there is 
there is a bit of a hierarchy in surfing um, mm-hmm. amongst surfers and bodyboarders. But the beauty of body surfing is we seem to skip all that. We seem to get a lot more respect or just people don't even, you know, bother that we're there. Like we're, as a body surfer, you generally sit more on the inside. Um, and so you're not, like a bodyboarder would take a wave almost as soon as it starts to ri- rise up. And they can catch a wave from very, very deep. And so they've got like first dibs on all the waves because it's super easy to catch it. So that's why a lot of a lot of surfers will get pissed off is because you know they steal a lot of their waves and they're waiting there and they don't get a chance to even go for it. Whereas a body surfer, you're sat inside of the surfers, so you're just picking up their scraps. So they got no issue with you whatsoever because you're not interfering with their waves, you're not stealing waves from them. You're just another person who's out there enjoying the ocean and wants to catch waves. So we've got like some amazing kind of connections and and, and community responses from from surfers. Which is which is cool because we just seem to skip that that annoying hierarchy that exists in surfing. Yeah, and that's a pretty considerable hurdle. As a speaking from experience, like trying to pick up surfing at an older age, mm. I um, this was years ago, but, but I, I just found it really hard because there is that hierarchy, and when you're a kook like I was, you ju- you go out, you paddle into like reasonable surf. There's a bunch of people there. There's only a limited amount of waves. Yeah, there's a there can be a lot of bad energy around like. You it's know. the same thing against kooks, yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're impacting their waves. You yeah. might be taken away from them or stop them from getting a wave. As long as you don't do that, it's fine. Um, but, yeah, as a body surfer, we're, we're never really stealing their waves. We're still, like, way out the back, but the beauty of body surfing is you can, you can drop into a wave at the very last minute, even if it's, like, beyond vertical. Um, you don't have to paddle into it and then stand up and set your line and then drop down. You know, you can you can paddle into a, a vertical drop and drop top to bottom and you know dig your your elbow in, your hip in, and your ribs in and hold your line, and then you're set and you, you can ride it through. Oh man, I'm getting exci- excited. It's <laughs> great, and I it is a thrill it. like that that, that like thrill of disconnect. But you can't easily do that on a surfboard, like unless you're extremely talented, like. A lot of the guys are who surf Cape Salander and hours and stuff. They might do like a big vertical drop on their surfboard, but stick it and have the confidence to do that. Mm. And most people just wouldn't. Um, but with body surfing, yeah, you, it's 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 very hard to mess it up. You have to mess it up badly to mess it up. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just drop in at last minute, have some have some some fun. I really love how you, you're describing it, how it's kind of new and up and coming and a lot of stuff hasn't been done yet because um, I grew up as a skateboarder. Joey, we skated together when we were young and I very much identify myself as a skateboarder even though I, I, I rarely do. I always got a deck in the, in the boot but I follow a lot of skateboarders and I follow skateboard culture um, and, it's, and it's, I feel like there's always a hierarchy when you get to a park but skateboarding is like different because... And I was a street skater. Like you can skate anywhere, and you know there's more opportunity in places, and it's more wide, widespread in locations. But they're always they've always gone through decades of pioneering, and you get to a point, and it's exciting to watch. And someone starts doing something, or the technology changes with the trucks. People can lock on easier mm-hmm. now. Everyone's on wider boards, and it's changing how people do things. And then it's also like people are skating spots that have never been skated before. And then it's becoming more commonplace for people to be skating just these giant sets and giant gaps and stuff. It's I love watching it. It's a 
exciting. Sounds hey? like at the time for, for, for body surfing is still like there's so much yet to be discovered. Yeah. Maybe someone's going to figure out how to tow in or, or whatever that is. That's mad. The thing is, like, I, don't, I don't ever see body surfing becoming hugely mainstream. I think it, it suffers from a very similar problem to jiu-jitsu. It's not really a spectator sport. You know, the people who mm. love to How watch. dare you say that about pyjama fighting. <laughs> <laughs> it's the but shittest like most, sport to most, watch. Most people who watch jiu-jitsu do jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And I think it's kind of been holding it back. It's it's obviously growing, but it's holding it back from becoming a hugely popular spectator sport. I do it and I don't watch it. To be, I find it boring. So, yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, yeah. And it's, just, it's the same with body surfing. Like, you know, it's there's no denying that surfing on a surfboard is, is like, incredible to watch. It's like artistic and, and sexy and everyone loves it um, but body surfing like you can barely see people when they're in the water because half of them is like underwater and you know most of the time they're probably in the barrel and you can't see them anyway or there's just a head popping out of some white water or something mm. but like unless you've been in that scenario and you know how that feels and what he's seeing and what they're seeing and like you it's not really much enjoyment for people to watch like I've been trying to convince my wife to you know, watch body surfing and you know, I'll go out there and catch some like incredible waves from the waves of my life. And I was like, did you see it? And she was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Look, good, looked good. Look, you're having some fun. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think it will ever become hugely mainstream just because it's not, it's not going to be a spectator sport like surfing. It's not going to have avid followers and, you know. How does the comp work? Was it, do you say there was a comp or was it just yeah, a... Yeah, so I, I, I run a competition every year or have done up until COVID. Yep. Um, it's interesting actually the competition set up because I, I, when I first started getting into body surfing and you know was getting to a relatively decent level, I, I attended a few competitions, um, which were like individual competitions. And for me, it felt super strange because I'd go in the water during the heat and there'd be like six other guys there no one was talking everyone was kind of on their own mission um and like watching their clocks and kind of like you know get into position because you've got to like you know sneak in your wave and you know time it out and just competitive vibe um and for me it took away like the fundamentals of what body surfing is about which is you know if you swim out in the water as a body surfer and you see someone else in the water body surfing you generally just swim up and say hey man how are you, you know, have a chat and like it's that that kind of level of sport and then, and then adding this competitive level to it kind of made me feel really weird and was like, this isn't like body surfing. This is, this is a whole other thing. Um, but then I attended quite a few kind of big community events that we set up. We'd go camping every year. And, you know, the number of attendees would get bigger and bigger and we end up camping with like 70 people who all just loved body surfing and you know, wanted more and more events to bring people together. So I came up with the concept of a team-based body surfing competition. So you enter as a team of 10 and you all get a turn in the water, but your scores are averaged out amongst your entire team. Um, and you know, we, we built that out until the last one we did um, at Maruba just before COVID. We had 140 registered competitors um, and all of their kind of you know, partners and stuff on the beach watching. And it was amazing because there is, in, in that kind of setup, there isn't that individual competitiveness. No one's kind of really kind of competing against each other. You're just out there trying to do what you want to do, have some fun and go in and tag your mate and then they go and do it. And it kind of takes away that that hugely mm. competitive edge. There's definitely people who like want to win, but just because there's so many people there that are interested in body surfing, 
you've all got that sh- in common and i'm sure it's similar to, to skating like people who love skating they'll come from different walks of life There's many different kind of people who love body surfing and so it's just a super interesting bunch of people that just enjoy being around other body surfers mm-hmm. and so it's just a community event and winning is just a bonus um and it kind of really come from that and and out of that because it was a team-based thing we started when i first launched like the competition thing and was like let's just get a few teams together and you know ha- have it out in the water because there's a bit of social media banter going on between a few individuals and whatnot um so we started the east sydney body surfers mm. um there was like i think on our first ever thing we did organized it through through instagram first ever meet up at tamarama beach was 13 people just come out of the woodwork you know like oh, i've been body surfing by myself for years i never knew there was anyone else and so then we started surfing as, as a crew and then we'd start an Instagram page around that crew. And then from that, there's been like 16 teams around Australia all, all united. And it inspires this kind of like someone who's surfing by themselves and wants to come to Wompoff was the name of the competition, is the name of the competition, Wompoff Australia. Um, if they want to come and attend the event, they've got to get a team together. So then all of a sudden they're inspired to look within mm, their community, mm. reach out social media wise and be like, hey, look, I'm going body surfing on on Saturday, anyone else want to come, like, you know, we'll get a bit of a crew together. And then they start surfing together every weekend and, you know, build out all these crews. And now there's like crews all over, which is That's incredible. So, cool. so yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a competition, at, you know, in a nutshell, but it's more a big community event. Um, but I just can't wait to get this next one done now post COVID um, and get the next one in. Cause we haven't been able to do it since 2019. Oh wow. So it's going to be big energy the next one. I hope so, yeah, especially now that all borders are open up because we get people flying in from overseas. We get people in from Hawaii, from California, from the UK. They're all into teams um, and interstate, WA, um, Victoria, South Australia. So, yeah, it, it's it's people are, are keen and willing to travel for it. So I'm hoping that, yeah, fingers crossed we can get something locked in for this year and um, people can come in. And it will be in Sydney if we do it, so... You guys should definitely come down. Maybe even if I train you up between now and then, you can enter a jungle whoa, team. Whoa, whoa. Dude, I'll be down. I know if, yeah, you're keen. I'll give it a go. We got we got the Bondi lifeguards in on the last event. And they entered oh, yeah. the team. How did um, they go? Uh, Corey, was Corey in there? Corey's, Corey, yeah. Is he still one of them? Yeah, he was in there. Um, Maxi and all those other um, mainstream ones. Yep. Um, but yeah, they, they left straight after the event. Um and they like cause I think they were a bit separate to the to the community side of things. They were there having a laugh and stuff, but they disappeared as soon as the event was over. Um, and that's something that doesn't normally happen in the body surfing world. Like people just kind of want to hang out and go, what can we do now? So as part of the event, the um, the after party has become a huge part. <laughs> mm. And the, the last one we did, which was in Marubra, we did it over at One Drop, which you guys know well. Oh yeah, uh, yes. that's right. And we hired out the yeah, entire. Clay was amazing. We hired out the entire place on a Saturday night and we had 200 people come who'd been competing all day at the competition. Oh, we come and did all the awards and stuff there and, you know, had a free bar and it was incredible. Um, and that's, yeah, it's just going to show that it's all just basically a, a community event. It's just an excuse for everyone to get together and catch some waves and then, and then have a big after party talking about it. Um, Fucking but, cool. But yeah, you guys should definitely come along. We're hopefully going to do it this year and we'll, we'll get it working. Got to ask, is there any tricks? Like, can, you can do a barrel roll, hey? 